Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Um, it's the 14th of May. We're here in Berkeley, California. We're looking into the uh, Flower Garland Sutra's Ten Grounds chapter. And we're on, uh, let's see. First of all, before I give you the page, I want to invite you to turn to the front cover of the text in front of you, if you will. We're going to recite the name of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and the Sutra itself. Namo Please turn to page 26 and 27. 
Welcome to everybody who might be joining us online from wherever you are. We've um, been doubling our our online presence, folks. We had uh, over 40 people last week from all over. And if you are joining us from online, please uh, pop into the chat so that our our online moderators can can register you, know where you're from. Um, later on tonight, I'm going to ask folks for Mother's Day stories, so you can think of the outstanding bright moment from Mother's Day last week, or something you, Mother's Day story you heard of. So, in case you've got one of those stories to share, there'll be a chance later on. We're on the third paragraph, which is the next to last paragraph. It starts like all the others. That's that's our paragraph. He further makes the following reflection: All beings have base and narrow minds. Okay, I'm going to put my palms together. Encourage you to do so. Should you care to? Yo, Yichia 广大智慧 He further makes the following reflection All living beings have base and narrow minds They do not walk the supreme path to omniscience Although they may think to escape They prefer the vehicle of sound hearers and Pracheka Buddhas. I should set them in the magnificent wisdom of the vast great Buddha Dharma. Okay. Our uh, Bodhisattva, this is our generic uh, guide. The, the sutra here is giving us uh, uh, standard Bodhisattva, uh, if you can imagine such a thing. It's the, the template for how bodhisattvas think and feel and act and speak. And so we get that, that ideal bodhisattva. Could be male, could be female, could have an Asian surname or a Western surname. Could be millennia past or right this minute. This bodhisattva, uh, we get a, a, a X-ray view of the inside of the bodhisattva's thinking place, be it heart or head. In Chinese, it's xin, which is, when they say xin, they, which means translated as mind, they point here, not here. So the bodhisattva in that thinking place reflects and says, all living beings have base 
meaning low level. Lie, um, inferior, meaning not up to the mark. Xin minds, minds that are base and Xia um, here literally means narrow, but it means exclusive, minds that exclude things, minds that are judgmental, minds that are prejudiced, biased, all the things that uh, create for conflict among humans. These, he says, living beings have minds like that, says the Bodhisattva. Very harsh thing to say about living beings, but from the Buddhist point of view, completely accurate. What does he mean here? He goes on to explain what he means. They don't walk the path that leads to the highest path of omniscience. Literally means um, wisdom of all kinds. The wisdom that, that gathers in everything. They don't xing, they don't walk those roads. Um, okay. The, um, the sutra has been giving us ten bodhisattva reflections. And they began way back on page 21. And we've been getting these uh, readouts on what living beings are like. And that means us. Bodhisattvas looking at us and saying, gee whiz, people, among other living beings, are um, sad and even pathetic. And they don't have much hope of getting free from the worst kinds of, of bad habits that people and others can have. And the, the things that we've been hearing, the critiques that we've been hearing, are character flaws, like greed, anger, delusion, attachments, doubts, pride, hate, rage, downright stupidity, egotism, narcissism. All of these um, inner and outer flaws, the bodhisattva is picking up and pointing pointing at and if it stopped there it would just be you could just dismiss it and say boy this bodhisattva got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning he's a what you call a misanthrope he does not like people he's basically he or she is should have probably my mother would say if you can't say something nice don't say anything at all remember that one Um, he would have been better off saying nothing at all than, than just giving this thorough critique from top to bottom of living beings. What makes it different than that, what makes it savable, is the last line of every one of these reflections. Every paragraph, the Bodhisattva says something mm, cutting and demeaning critique of us, but then the Bodhisattva says, precisely because of those problems that I see living beings having, that cause them pain, that lead to intense suffering and grief, I'm going to do whatever it takes to change them and set them free of that habit and, as a result, set them free of pain. Give them a way to leave misery. 
I'm going to cure the blues for all these living beings. Says the Bodhisattva ten times in a row. And we're, um, it's, uh, we're in a time of political correctness where in public places it's illegal in some places to even express opinions that are uh, demeaning or exclusive or harsh or critical. Not that there's anything wrong with that is what we say, right? Not that there's anything wrong with that. And we get a laugh. That was what that was Seinfeld's line, right? So, not that there's anything wrong with that. And we're kind of uh, sanitized against saying anything helpful until things really break, such as the doctor says fourth stage cancer inoperable. Then we get the bad news, you know, or we're going to have to remove that. The doctor, doctors can say that, uh, police say that, judges say that, but until we actually hit the wall and something breaks, until they say, oh, we're going to have to open the levee and flood your farm, you know, thousands of people whose crops were flooded today as the army opened the levee, trying to save, guess where? New Orleans. Trying to save New Orleans one more time, they flooded people's worlds. Sorry, you're, you're expendable. The millions of folks downriver, we can't risk, so you go down. We're going to flood you out. Go move. They said to those families, don't leave a toothpick behind. Go now and take everything with you. Assume you're not coming back. So, so when things break, that's who we hear from. We get the bad news then. Until that time, we're supposed to be really polite and not offend. We can't offend. We can't say anything that has a hook on it but publicly. Of course, when it's, we close the door and sit around the kitchen table, then comes out all, all the hooks and barbs. So here's the bodhisattva being politically incorrect, really politically incorrect, really harsh, and talking about not the superficials, not... I don't like you because of your skin color or your surname or your, the car you drive. I don't like you because you have a rotten personality. Because right? you're stupid, says the Bodhisattva. Like really rude and crude and incorrect. And yet, doesn't, the difference is, doesn't come from a heart of... Um, what, what makes this okay? What makes it okay is the Bodhisattva says it the way the doctor says. I'm sorry, the tests tell us we have found cancer cells. Or that spot on the top of your head means you'll be in surgery tomorrow. Don't wait. Like, things like that. And you don't say, no, that's okay, I'm busy, I've got to, you know go to wash some sheets and things and take books to the library. I don't need to operate on that cancer on the top of my head. You don't. You go, right? The Bodhisattva comes from there. He's coming from that place of nothing for his benefit whatsoever except helping the Bodhisattva get closer to his vows to save living beings. That's the difference. And if you don't see that difference, then this is just rude. 
the bodhisattvas got sour disposition, cynical. So you don't have to listen. If we assume that's true, then this is all just mean, you know, mean-spirited. But if you understand that the bodhisattva gains nothing, and in fact by standing there and saying, you're pathetic, you know what? I'll go last after you. You're going to beat me to Buddhahood. I'm going to guarantee that you get there first. When you hear that, it's like, oh. Like um, Camus, right? Albert Camus writes in The Plague about the doctor who sticks around. Right? There's the doctor stays. What about doctors who, you know, in the time of SARS, remember SARS? Sudden acute respiratory syndrome or something like that. Um, that was the if you traveled through Hong Kong airport during SARS you had to go through the little heat screen and they, they would pull you out of line and quarantine you everybody wears masks it's like that what about the doctors who stay during the plague doctors who stay when everyone else is just by contact is getting sick and they're there helping what about that kind of heart that's the Bodhisattva's heart. He says, I should let them, make them, help them, cause them, enable them to... And then comes his vow, or her vow. And it's always something like, get to nirvana, where it doesn't hurt anymore. That's the difference. So we've been hearing that ten times. This is, we got to the last one tonight. This is the last one. This time, the Bodhisattva says, all living beings have base and narrow minds. What would the opposite be? All living beings are noble and magnanimous. That would be the opposite. And if the Bodhisattva said that, some of you would say, he doesn't know my in-laws. He doesn't know my brother. Or my boss. Uh, all living beings have base and narrow minds. They don't walk the supreme path to omniscience. They're not at all interested in having their minds expand and understand and pause before acting and consider before making judgments. They don't. Living beings instead go, oh yeah, you know, that's the way they are. They're just like that. Oh yeah, I met them. That's the way they are. That's what living beings do. Living beings make snap judgments based on superficials. I hate that sucker. You know, loser, right? That's living beings thing is to make a judgment based on a superficial and act on it or say something exclusive, making say something that excludes someone instead of inclusive. Living beings don't wait to include. They don't put one more seat at the table. They want there to be fewer people at the table. Okay, that's what living beings do. They don't walk the supreme path to omniscience. Although they might think to escape, they prefer the vehicles of sound hearers and pracheka buddhas. Ho! This requires explanation. What's a sound hearer? What's a pracheka buddha? Um... If you are new to Buddhist texts, this is going to sound, uh, this is going to surprise you. 
This is internal Buddhist sectarianism um, that comes from a good heart, but in fact is... Um, we could have a sound here in Pratshika Buddha sitting right here who feels excluded. By the, well, what's this all about? Um, we are looking at a text that belongs to the Mahayana tradition, the northern tradition, called the Great Vehicle, Mahayana. And the hero, the role model of the Mahayanas is the Bodhisattva, the awakened being. There are other large members, large groups of Buddhists in the Buddhist family who do not celebrate the Bodhisattva, who instead celebrate what are called the Arha, or in some cases the solitary Buddha. Pracheka here means sometimes translated as single Buddha, solitary Buddha, um, conditioned, awakened one who is awakened by following conditions, not yet bodhisattvas. There are groups who celebrate those sages. Now, these are people, uh, arhats, what do we have here? Sound hearers. Another way to say sound hearer is arhat. Sound hearer means someone who hears the Buddha's voice and awakens to the way. Sometimes they're called shravakas. Shravaka is a Sanskrit word. That means one who wakes up upon hearing the Buddha's voice. Now, not necessarily literally. The Buddha has entered nirvana years ago, 2,500 years ago. But they hear the echo of the Buddha's voice in the Dharma. They hear the sound of the Buddha's teaching. And when they do, they wake up. Specifically, they say that these sound hearers, shravakas, arhats, all three names for the same thing, hear the four noble truths, usually, and the eightfold path. That's what they hear. That's the sound, the voice that they hear. They hear the four noble truths. Suffering or dissatisfaction, the cause of it, the cessation of suffering, and the path to the cessation of suffering. They hear that and they wake up. Or they hear the eightfold path, the noble eightfold path, which is that fourth truth, the path to awakening. And they wake up. Those are called sound hearers, voice hearers, shravakas. If um, you attend the services at Abhayagiri Forest Monastery up in Redwood Valley, these are our Dharma brothers and sisters, neighbors up in Mendocino County, you will hear them chant, and they go, Sabaka Sango Ratanam Padam. Sabaka Sango is Pali language for Shangwan Sang, the Sangha of sound hearers. They praise the sound hearers every day. They're chanting. They call themselves the sound hearer, the, 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 the assembly of people who hear the Buddha's voice. So there's that entire group of Buddhists over there who completely celebrate sound hearers. Why is our bodhisattva criticizing sound hearers? Interesting, huh? Pracheka Buddhas are cultivators, practitioners, men or women, who don't necessarily follow the Four Noble Truths of the Eightfold Path. They do 
cultivate and follow the twelve links of conditioned arising. Pratitya Samutpada in Sanskrit and Pali. Um, the Chinese is Shi Er, Shi Er Yin Yuan Fa. The twelve links of conditioned arising, which is a major, powerful, incredibly wonderful teaching of the Buddha. There are Buddhist groups. My particular advisor uh, for my, my doctorate, Professor Nakasone, who is a regular visitor here, studies uh, with, uh, he is a priest of the Jodo Shinshu tradition, the Japanese Pure Land School. And they particularly celebrate the 12 links of conditioned awakening, among many other dharmas. And Dr. Nakasone, he put this in my ear, and I'll never forget it. He always said, this is perhaps the single most unique signature teaching of the Buddha, is the 12 links of conditioned arising. So he puts that up as the supreme good, sumum bonum, the highest goodness. So how interesting, right? Though that's a, a pracheka Buddha, conditioned awakened, one who is, wakes up, leaves birth and death because of hearing the twelve links of conditioned arising. Pratitya samutpada is the name, and you'll that that Sanskrit word pops up all the time in in Buddhist studies. It's the it's got a bunch of different names: conditioned arising. Um, conditioned co-production, um, conditioned awakening, all these different things. It's the teaching that says ignorance conditions actions. Actions condition consciousness. Consciousness conditions name and form. Name and form conditions uh, the, the six entrances, etc. Conditions means links. The word in Chinese is yuan. And yuan by itself can mean a condition. Oh, under those conditions. The con- really bad conditions, so we didn't fly that day. right? That kind of condition. But as a verb, it means to bring about. To pull. Yuan, like pan yuan. It, it pulls. So ignorance pulls consciousness. Consciousness pulls actions, etc. So um, those 12 links are the another dharma, another of the Buddha's teachings. Nakasone sensei says, it's the most important one. That no other, why does he say that? It's that no other Indian religious teacher at the time saw that condition, that that teaching, saw that truth, that from the single condition of ignorance, you get all the way to birth, old age, sickness, death, and the suffering of that. So that school says that's really it. That's If you want to say what is the unique, special hallmark of the Buddha's teaching, that tradition says the 12 links of conditioned arising. That's what they say. If you study those in particular and really go deeply into them, you can become a Pracheka Buddha, says the teaching. That's not the Arhats, it's not the Bodhisattvas, it's the middle stage. If, okay, if becoming an Arhat is a BA or a BS, Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Science, Pracheka Buddhas are MA, that's the master's degree. 
And Buddhahood would be doctorate. The bodhisattvas would be postdoc work, right? Going on. So you've already got your doctorate and you go back to school. That's the bodhisattva. So what's an MA? An MA is the Pracheka Buddha, who is somewhere in between. Awake, enlightened, out of birth and death, beyond the suffering of samsara, but still being criticized. What, what, what? Why is our sutra saying base and narrow minds lead to no desire to escape? Only arhats, sound hearers, and prachika buddhas. Interesting, huh? Criticized. Why? Because the bodhisattva, from the point of view of the Abhatamska Sutra, is the highest, best use of the opportunity to cultivate. Okay, I'm going to explain that in a minute, but I wanted to point out what the sutra is saying. Maybe, you know, a lot of people come to Buddhism thinking, I want to meditate. I like to meditate. Meditation feels good. I needed to slow down a lot. When I meditate, I slow down. feels good. I need it. I need to clear, clear things up. And the chaos, the spinning whirl of the world somehow finds a balance. I find a balance in the midst of the spinning when I meditate. Many, many people come to Buddhism, come to Buddhist monasteries, communities, or the the structures that form around the side, like Vipassana centers, for example, and get huge benefit. Many people stop there. Great. Nothing wrong. Good stuff. Personally, I started there in the Zen world and only because of one condition, which was my college roommate, did I go any farther because I had a college roommate who started there too. His brother meditated at the Providence Zen Center in a Korean tradition. But he came to California from Michigan, where we were, and met Master Shenhua. When he met Master Shenhua, he stepped into a deeper, bigger Buddhist tradition than the Zen world. Only then when he started touching these, which didn't exist in this form then, they existed in that form, in the canon or that form. Only when he touched these did he discover that within Buddhism, you, there are 2,500 years of very intelligent men and women working on themselves using the Buddha's teachings, which includes Zen, but are not limited to meditation. When you discover that, oh my goodness, when people start using the Dharma on their bodies and minds, what happens? Some people get a little and stop. Some people get much more and stop. They just, they're, they run out of gas. They're satisfied. They don't seek any further. Other people push beyond to find out 
what is possible. Those are the kind of people that the sutra is talking to. Maybe we're not one of those people, we're just kind of curious. Well, the sutra says, fine, here's the farther shore. Keep looking. Which is what? In this specific case. Sound hearers and Pracheka Buddhas have deeply unpacked their minds. They have gone deeply into the arising of their thoughts. They have um, drawn near the Buddha to discover a better way to live, better if you are looking to see to the bottom of your mind. The Buddha says, okay, you want to do that? You have to look at your character. Ethics is the real key to going deeper. It's who you are that makes the biggest difference in how you meditate. Meditation is good at any point, just calming down. But if you want to go deep, you have to look at what you do. The Buddha, in this description, becomes a Buddha through what are called virtues. Says the theory, says the theory the Buddha describes, those virtues are part of who you are. But we cover them so they don't shine. You have to do them. In the Jewish tradition, mitzvot, you do good things. You do what is right. And the more of those you do, the theory goes, the more covers come off your nature and these virtues shine. And so the Buddha is one who is 10,000 virtues complete. One, the He is full. She is full of every possible shining quality of the nature. That's Buddhahood, says this tradition. So, oh my goodness, this is way different than I thought. I was just coming to meditate. What's all this be good stuff? So the Buddha says, right, that's what I discovered too. Because why? The Buddha wanted to meditate too. That's why he left the palace. That's exactly what the Buddha did. He said, I realize that I'm going to die. And I was raised to be a winner. I don't want to just die. There's got to be more. Right? And he didn't have any sutra or Buddhist monastery or Dharma friends to say, right, just do this. No, he just kind of had this burning fire that didn't want to just die. And the palace was a pretty nice place. He didn't want to just die. And he saw that was exactly where he was heading. And before he got there, he was going to get old and get sick. He said, not good enough. There's got to be more. So he with no promise of success, lit out for the territory, the way Huck Finn does. Just lit out for the territory. And when he got there, it took him six years to figure out that it was a question of virtue, that he had to become a better person. Now, there are people who will say, another one of my professors, by goodness, said, it's a little uncomfortable to realize that the Buddha himself was just an arhat, he said. 
And I knew that couldn't, that was not right. And I didn't know why that was not right. So I said, yes, sir. Because why he was responsible for signing my degree, and I couldn't say, dude, couldn't. So what does the Mahayana say that is different from Professor Lancaster? Not that we're naming you. (laughs) The Mahayana tradition says that immediately upon awakening, the first thing the Buddha did, you could say before he uncrossed his legs on the Bodhi tree, was speak the Avatamsaka Sutra, which outlined the Bodhisattva path. No arhat could do that. A mere arhat. All right. Now, okay. So, here we had people saying, there's got to be more. And so they wanted to find more. They wanted to go deeper. And when they did, they discovered that the way to go deeper is not through getting like better with the technique or mm, getting secrets. In fact, it comes from uncovering what's already there but is covered up and making your nature right. You don't add anything. In fact, you make progress through reduction. You progress through subtraction. The more you cultivate, the less you have of stuff you don't want, which is greed, anger, delusion, pride, doubt. The general term is ignorance, all those things. So here's the meditator saying, yeah, boy, there's a lot more here than I thought, which is what I found out when I got to Gold Mountain Monastery, that this was a deep ocean, and very intelligent men and women had been working on this one for thousands of years in numerous languages, numerous cultures. So, as they did that, they all got to this place where they discovered the mind had levels. And the sutra is saying, if you stop at the level of sound hearer, voice hearer, shravaka, arhat, that's an incredible accomplishment, but you're not there yet. Let's say you want to get to Seattle. Good choice. You get to Crescent City and stop. Crescent City is a nice place, right there on the coast. But you stop. You don't get to Portland. How much less Seattle? So you keep on cultivating. You leave the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path as your daily work, and you go to the 12 links of conditioned awakening. You really work harder. You purify your mind and go deeper and meditate and keep practicing and uncovering your nature. You get to Portland. You become a conditioned awakened one, a a, a Pacheka Buddha, a solitary Buddha, solitary awakened. Pretty good. Portland's a very nice place. There's a huge culture in Portland but you're not to Seattle. And so you work harder, you cultivate deeper, and pick up what? What's next in this list of Four Noble Truths for sound hearers, 12 links for Shravakas or for Prajika Buddhas. Bodhisattvas cultivate the six paramitas, the six perfections. That's the signature dharma for bodhisattvas. Each 
stage of awakening has its own practices. So, Four Noble Truths for Sound Hearers, Twelve Links for Pacheka Buddhas, and the Six Perfections, the Six Paramitas, the Six Ways Across, is a signature hallmark Bodhisattva Dharma. So, Bodhisattvas go further and cultivate that. And what happens? They reach the path of omniscience. They reach the state of omniscience, having followed the path of omniscience. That's the particular doctrinal bias of this sutra. And that sounds harsh, but it's really true. It's important, I think, to see the Avatamsaka Sutra in the context of the bigger Buddhist world, which is, from our vantage point, the Bodhisattva and omniscience is the highest, deepest use of the mind. From the point of view of the Theravada, not so. And it's really important not to just repeat these particular critiques and think that that's it. From our point of view, from you know our school, meaning here the Mahayana from the Chinese tradition, shared by Vietnamese, Korean, and some Japanese schools, right, this is the highest. From the point of view of the Sri Lankan tradition, the Thai tradition, Burmese, Cambodian, that's a bias. And if you look at what's involved in becoming a sound hearer, you have to say, let's really be clear before we simply parrot this. Why do I... I'm, I'm giving you politically correct Buddhist language. Why? Because I, for years, only heard the Chinese Mahayana tradition, and I just adopted it and started to, you know, yeah, well... Those inferior self-ending arhats, selfish, narrow, base, you know, that's a small vehicle. Do you know that? That's a small vehicle. <laughs> and here are these, you know, six foot two, six foot four Thai bhikkhus. They're going, uh, if we're the small vehicle, that makes you the large vehicle? In what way are you larger? <laughs> You're the small vehicle. Did you know that? <laughs> it's kind of silly, you know, to like, say, no, that's a bias. Okay, what is a better way to describe it? A better way to describe it is to say there are selfish thoughts that say, I'm very happy to end birth and death and to put an end to suffering, to go beyond confusion and ignorance. That's a thought that says, oh, you're suffering? Dharma's free. Try your best. You know, that's a selfish thought that only wants to enjoy the fruits of cultivation for yourself. That would be a selfish thought if I said, I have my birthday cake. You don't. You want some birthday cake? Mm, wait till I'm done, and I'll see if there's any crumbs for you. That would be a selfish. Anybody who's got a brother or sister, you'd hate them, right? Uh, So selfishness is selfishness. If it's exclusive, I'm happy, you're sad, who cares? That's obviously wrong. That's a problem in the thought. It's not that these people are arhats and therefore inferior. 
or the small vehicle is inferior to us, the great vehicle. That's called fighting, and that's wrong too. So what's the thing to do? The thing to do, what's correct, is to say, whenever in my mind I see a selfish thought rise and don't expand it, then I have become an inferior arhat, but not even an arhat. Arhats aren't selfish. Arhats are incredible, devoted, dedicated, pure cultivators of the Dharma. If an arhat was sitting right here in our first seat, we would all bow, you know, we'd go, oh my God, that person is shedding light and how incredibly awesome that person looks. To become an arhat is extremely difficult. Why? You have to end desire. You have to go beyond the ego. You have to sit very still. What can an arhat do? An arhat can sit at lunch and here comes the bowl of pho and it's vegetarian pho. It doesn't have beef in it and they take one spoonful and it doesn't taste like pho used to taste at home and they don't reach for the, the la jiao sauce, right? They don't reach for the hot pepper sauce. If it doesn't taste like it used to at home, they're fine. It's delicious. It was made by somebody with love and care and it fills them just the same. That's what an arhat can do. Not easy, guys, right? Maybe you don't have that particular pho by... I've seen them. I've seen these guys walk in the dining room and, you know, and they, they taste the vegetarian pho smells really good and they taste it and they go, where's the, so- where's the flavor? You know, they're looking for the hot sauce because... It's vegetarian. It doesn't taste like beef soup. Ah, okay. That's an in-joke, right? You have to appreciate Vietnamese vegetarian food, Buddhist Vietnamese vegetarian food, to get the humor in that. So, I think our vegetarian pho is delicious, because why? I've never tasted beef pho. I never saw pho before I became a vegetarian. Pho is, is beef noodle soup. Buddhists don't eat beef, so we put mock meat in the pho. But I noticed around here, you all have stopped putting the mock meat into the pho. I really admire that. There are these texturized TVP, texturized vegetarian protein, right? It's just like beef. You would swear that it was beef. And the cooks around here have stopped putting it in the vegetarian pho. Right on. Yeah, and they used to. It was kind of, there were years when we were on that bridge to letting go of that beef. So we've created our own American vegetarian pho, and it's really good. Mmm, yummy. But I watch these guys come in, and they think they're going to get that flavor, like, you know, Campbell's tomato soup, and it doesn't taste like Campbell's, and they, they're looking in their mouth, you know. So an arhat can have that happen and go, yeah, this is really delicious, and not be unhappy when it doesn't taste the way it used to. Ha, 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 not. I went through a time when I decided I was going to eat no oil, no salt. I'll show you what a tough cultivator I am. Right? And, oh, the first month of eating food with no seasoning, my tongue went nuts, just looking for, where's the flavor? And your tongue has those taste buds that are used to, and you expect the flavor, 
right? If you are a two spoonfuls of sugar coffee drinker, take it black and watch what happens. Or if you, you know, put in the creamer or the half and half, try it without and watch what your tongue does. It goes, something's wrong here, <laughs> right? It's like that. And an arhat goes, this is wonderful. Organic attachments, right? When you don't get them, watch your body go crazy. Try to put up with, when you're sweating and too hot, just leave your sweater on when it's 70 degrees out. Like, no, your whole body's going, hey, too hot, take it off, adjust it. You go, no, that's fine. No, very difficult. So an arhat is awesome. Powerful, having been through discipline. Watching body and mind adjust to a form called the Dharma and take the loss internally instead of reaching out into the world to adjust it, to make it right or else. What do we do mostly when things don't suit us? Lash out, mostly. If we reach some sort of conflict, some sort of resistance to what I want. Our culture entirely encourages us to change the world the way I want it or watch it. To the point where, right, we've gotten numb to people using violence to pursue desire, right? You have a really nice shearling jacket. Give me that. Right? Now or I'll shoot you dead. That's how much we do not solve resistance inside. An arhat comes to a situation of what's called in Chinese ni jingjie, something that goes against the green, and he or she goes, it's okay. They inhale, exhale, swallow, reflect on that rising, I want, I want, get me now, that. And they go, it's okay. And it is. It's not repression. It's transformation. It's owning that energy, taking the me that wants off it. And letting that energy just go around. Because what is it that says, give me now? It's the me. And the me is, from the arhat's point of view, a wrong view. That's a habitual perspective constructed out of sense data, habit, bias, congealed thinking, layers of thought that we identify as my point of view. The bodhisattva, the arhat, the meditator, goes... Yeah, that's rooted in ignorance. Because why? That's a construct made up of other things. Unpack it, take it apart, analyze it, deconstruct it, you'll discover there's no self in there. Don't believe it? Try it. Because the meditator has been sitting there long enough to watch those thoughts rise that they have dug in. It's fascinating to realize how much I make the world with every thought. The world that I experience is my movie. 
I'm the director, I'm the actor, I'm the writer, I'm the makeup artist, I'm the set constructor, I'm the reeve, I'm the film, the photographer. I'm the audience. All of it is my own movie. And when you sit still long enough, after for a long time, it's just irritating to not be able to satisfy what I want. Damn it, get out of my way. Now. But the beauty of meditation and the beauty of the Dharma, if you think of Dharma as this kind of a mold, is it we fit it on ourselves and it doesn't fit for a long time. It's either too tight or too loose or somebody else's. And then at some point we say, I'm really interested in finding out what's on the other side of I want. Right? You sit there and think, what is that? What? Why am I moved by that? How come that will push me around? Who's in charge of that? If you start keep asking, like the Buddha did, right? Here's the prince, the prince who had every desire satisfied instantly in the palace, goes out into the wilds, which is kind of like Tilden Park. I mean, it's it's you would, they talk about the jungle, but it wasn't very far from the palace. India was, you know, natural paradise. He went out into the woods and sat there and had no support systems in place at all. No way to satisfy his desires at all. Hungry? Go chase something. Right? Pick something. Go deal with the other ascetics who probably have less than you do. Cold? Well, breathe deeply. Hyperventilate. Start your own engine. Scared at night, deal with it. Right? No way to satisfy it except look at the mind and unpack it internally. That's what an arhat does. Is resolves conflict and discomfort with strength of mind. With character and willpower. Because why? Nothing else. The amazing thing is you discover that the Dharma is all you need. That's the Buddha's discovery. Was He didn't have a Dharma. He just had his own resources and incredible goodness of heart. He had been doing mitzvot all his lifetimes until he had that bank account of goodness. He was what you call a mensch. Right? The prince was a, a really solid, stable human with deep inner resources. He was the best of humanity. So when he went inside, he found that bank account of goodness that allowed him to sit there. But I bet he went through scary, lonely nights. Don't you know? But why would we bow to an arhat? Because... They do that. And what the Buddha came up with was called the Dharma, that there wasn't such a thing. He said, hey, you know what? When times get tough, try this. He said to the other meditators, try this. And they go, yeah, yeah, I've been there. Oh, oh, I just have to adjust it. That might work, they say. And then they try it, and then they try it, and then they try it. And sure enough, they say, that was what the World Honor One said to us about what to do when times get tough, let's write that down. 
And that was the result of that. There was no Dharma. There was no teacher until the prince sat still long enough to make it through and then left the trail, the paper trail. Very scientific, very much laboratory with a paper trail. So that's what arhats do. And that's why we would bow. It's not easy to become an arhat. And yet, and yet, and yet, here's our sutra saying, living beings have base and narrow minds. They don't walk the supreme path to omniscience. They might think to escape, but they prefer the vehicle of sound hearers and Pratchika Buddhas. They get off at Crescent City in Portland. They don't get to Seattle. And the sutra saying, get to Seattle. Or if you're really, really good, get to Vancouver. Of course, you need a passport. I should set them in the magnificent wisdom of the vast great Buddha Dharma. I should really find a way to inspire them, encourage them, tease them, trick them, whatever it takes to get them to appreciate that there's more. There really is more in the mind. All right. Here's an interesting way to look at What's what the Bodhisattva path says? I I told this story before. Our we have another uh, Dharma friend, Bante Shilavimala. Bante is a Sri Lankan bhikkhu who's I think he ordained at age nine or something like that. He'd been a monk his whole life. He's a wonderful, much beloved teacher uh, from the Sri Lanka tradition. He teaches. He's a colleague at the Graduate Theological Union and he spends most of his time in Sacramento. Bhante and I have taught uh, together often um, in various contexts and one day he invited me to uh, guest lecture in his Introduction to Buddhism class at Pacific School of Religion. And we were uh, talking about the Buddhist description of the mind. And he was speaking directly from the Sri Lankan Theravada, Pali language-based tradition. And he said, and the Buddha described human nature as made up of consciousnesses. The eye consciousness, the nose consciousness, the ear consciousness, the tongue consciousness, the body consciousness, and the last one, the sixth mind consciousness. And I'm going... Bhante, you left out two. No, no, no. No, only six. <laughs> uh, okay, well, put them up. <laughs> so, and I said, and the Buddha described the mind is made up of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind consciousness, the transmitting consciousness, and the eighth, the alaya, storehouse consciousness. And Bhante goes, oh, that's a later edition. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and the students are going, oh, this is interesting. You know. <laughs> Who's right? Stop, you're both right. So only then was I aware that the Theravada does not affirm eight consciousness. Oops, who's right? And it's, that's a big, 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 big difference because Bhante was saying, here's how the Buddha described humanity. 
And if I had spoken first, I would have said something different. The Buddha described humanity as having two more consciousnesses. Very, very important. So, what about that? The difference, why does our bodhisattvas say living beings have base and narrow minds? They don't want to escape. They stop with two what are called lesser vehicles. In, in the Avatamsaka, they're called arshram, the two vehicles, cultivators, meaning vehicles meaning a way to something that carries us out of suffering. So there's the sound hearer vehicle, the pracheka Buddha vehicle, the Buddha vehicle, and the bodhisattva's vehicle. What's going on? From the point of view of the Mahayana, if you become an arhat and don't continue to cultivate, don't make vows, particularly, don't uh, practice the path of omniscience, you have not plumbed the bottom of your mind. You haven't got to the bottom yet. So the point of that is, the Mahayana describes the mind deeper. It says there's more. So never mind Crescent City and Portland heading to Seattle. If we say birth and death has ended and living beings had best help themselves because I'm gone. I'm out of suffering. Hallelujah. I'm saved. Lord Almighty, free at last. If you say that, there's still a lot of your mind you haven't seen says the Mahayana. Same with Pracheka Buddha. You've gone deeper, but there's more to go. Okay? Yes, Connie. Can. Can. And if you look at the, the Sharangama Sutra, they describe that as a state, they, they describe it as a state of samadhi, a meditative state that is an inferior, let's say, no, no, no. They say you can meditate to a place where things feel really good and comfortable, but you haven't, you haven't completely awakened. And they'll stay there forever. And they say it's really pleasant, but it's kind of like a drug high. You know, where things are fuzzy and warm and good and you're not suffering, but you're not awake from the Buddhist point of view. And that's exactly how they criticize it. Yeah, sad, huh? Yeah, they say that's... And the Buddha in, in the Mahayana Sutras warns against it. said, don't stop. Where, Angela? beyond conditions but it's really complicated and I can't describe it clearly because it's not my state but I can tell you what the sutra says the sutra says that somebody who gets it's um, they describe it as wankong a state of dull emptiness where you um, cultivate to a place of some awareness but you can if you stop there your, what do they say? There's some of the markers along the way. 
one of the first things that happens as you meditate on that path is you see the emptiness of the self. You empty out the self. You understand that the personality is a construct, etc. But you still haven't seen the emptiness of dharmas. So there are certain principles like purity, like um, some of the things that arhats attach to. Um, the, The critiques are that they're attached to purity. They're attached to states. They're attached to comfort. If you take the next step, the next marker is you empty out dharmas too. You realize that everything is made from the mind alone. It's all an expedient means to get you to wake up. That's the next step. Very hard to get there. That's kind of like saying, oh, I got my MA. PhD should be easy, huh? Well, it is if you have another like seven to ten years and another like $100,000 and get through every step of the way, including dissertation. Many, many, many people take all the steps towards getting a doctorate, but stop before that dissertation. They're called ABD, all but dissertation. And it's tragic, because if they could write that damn book, they would be done. But they, the, the Chinese describes it as a dragon gate. Fish swim upstream and swim and swim, and they want to become dragons, don't they? And we have an expert on the dragon gate. And they have to jump this gate. And most of them don't leap high enough, and they're like, they call them dried scales upon the dragon gate. If they can leap the gate, they become dragons. Mostly they're, they fall short, and they just leave their scales on the dragon gate. So, that's ABD, all but dissertation. So, this, I'll give you another example. In the um, Avatamsaka, in our sutra, Flower Dharma Sutra, when somebody gets to the seventh and eighth ground, we're on the second ground here, this is the second ground, five more chapters in, we'll get there one of these years if we keep lecturing. Um, the bodhisattvas meditating along, and they get to a place where dharmas become empty. And it's a terrifying state because everything you thought you know dissolves. Seems to be unstable, just something you learned. You start to doubt everything, including the mind. Like, (coughs) all knowledge is based upon language, and thinking, right? Pretty much. Everything you know is pretty much based on thinking or, or numbers, numbers and language and thinking. What about when you start deconstructing the thing that knows language and numbers and thinking? So words and thoughts start to just break up because you, the thinker, isn't reliable. You realize that it's all made of chemical reactions. There are atoms and elements and tiny, 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 tiny things that are, when you analyze those, they're only electrons running around the nucleus that's empty to begin with. They say that every atom is mostly space. You take an atom of anything, there's 
protons, neutrons, electrons, and a nucleus. And then there's the space where those run in. Everything is mostly empty. That's what science tells us. When you start analyzing that, you go, oh my God, what about everything I know? It's all based upon other chemical reactions. It's like, at that point, they say it's really terrifying. The sutra right then says, the Buddhas appear before the Bodhisattva and say, don't stop, don't quit. Living beings are still suffering like mad. Don't forget your vows. Take the next step. Cross that abyss of emptiness and don't quit. There are, Connie, many cultivators who stop and say, it's all enough. Life was really good. Why throw myself back into the maelstrom of this empty stuff? I can't trust anything. And the sutra says many cultivators do. But if you, and they say the Buddhas actually do come and, you know, become your cheering squad. Go, 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 go. Don't stop. Jayo, jayo. And if you take that next step, you what? Become an eight-stage bodhisattva. You're safe. And cultivation is much easier at that point. And that's the bodhisattva path. But they, they, you know, I'm giving you the pure sutra description. They say it's like that. The path of cultivation has these huge crossroads. And it's a, it's a, it's a toss of the dice to see what you'll do at that point. That's why hearing the sutra is, is really good because you get encouragement for times when everything breaks up. You can't depend on anything except your vows and compassion. You see, that's, that's what does it. So, okay, so um, from that point of view, I was describing Bhante's, you know, saying only six, only six. From the Theravada point of view, that's it, only six. So if you become an Arhat or a Pracheka Buddha, that's an incredibly wonderful accomplishment. Huge. To be able to do that, to, to not reach for the, the hot sauce when the pho doesn't taste right. Tough, right? To see an opportunity to cheat on your taxes or on some way to get a little bit of advantage for you, and you don't. You just let it go and say, oh, I'll pass that good stuff on to somebody else. i got to be true. I still have to look in the mirror tomorrow. And if I got that little advantage from me, I couldn't look in the mirror. What's that worth? And you pass it on. You let it go. You let go the little advantage. That's what these arhats can do. How hard that is. And that's the measure of us. We mostly fall short. So, Sutra says, I need to set them in the magnificent wisdom of the vast great Buddha Dharma, where, if they can take that next step, they are completely free of any attachment. They are free of self. They've emptied out dharmas entirely, and they have reached what? Great compassion, where they and living beings are the same. There is no difference now between them and mosquitoes, whales, ghosts, spirits, hell beings, Buddhas, bodhisattvas. That's where I want to get them. That's the bottom of the mind. Don't stop here. 
from that point of view, this is not just a sectarian tirade. This is not a doctrinal rant, right? The Bodhisattva is not like out to, to show off himself as better and them and fear not. It's that the Bodhisattva wants all living beings, including sages who have not seen the bottom of their minds, to get to Buddhahood. If they don't, he, she can't rest. Because their vows are take living beings to liberation. Sages are free of suffering. They're not free of the, the, the subtle birth and death of thoughts. That's this subtle difference. So how interesting, right? Here's the Bodhisattva working on the top of the pyramid. Early on in these reflections, he was working on beings in the hells, ghosts, animals, and then humans with our greed and our fighting. And then now he's up there working with the sages and subtly correcting their, their minds. How interesting. Here's the sutra saying, yeah, the bodhisattva's in it for the long haul. He wants to deliver the dharma to every one of those living beings. Neat. That's, that's what the sutra does. I was, uh, I've been, I've become a Ken Burns fan. And I watched the Civil War. My brother and I used to, when we were uh, sharing bunk beds back in the day, we used to study the Civil War and uh, make, draw maps of the, the Battle of Gettysburg and General McClelland and General Lee and Pickett's Charge. And we used to study all that. Ken Burns really uh, laid that out in a graphic, beautiful way. Then I went on to the, the First World, the, the Second World War, which is called the War. And from the point of view of the United States, that was the war. And in the process of watching the suffering that he lays out, the statistic that um, one man is certainly he was a creation of the time, but one man, Adolf Hitler, was in small and large ways responsible for the death of 50 million people. It's hard to imagine. That one, I mean, it's not. He was the head of the Third Reich, etc. But he's not unfairly identified with all of the evil horror that came from that. 50 million people came to intense grief through this, this person's thinking. When you add it all up, that was the, the end. And you go, how long ago was that? Well, that ended in 1945. And if you do the math, that's eh, my dad's generation went through that. I think, who are we as human beings that here on this planet we can kill each other to that extent? You go, oh, that's the living beings the sutra's talking about. And yet, my dad. But his body, the, um, 
I, he, the other thing that he talked about in episode number four of that or, is that if you were a, uh, a pilot or a bombardier or a gunner or a co-pilot in the Army Air Corps, in what became the U.S. Air Force, uh, in Europe, you had an average lifespan of 17 missions. If you went up and came back down safely 17 times, your chances of dying just soared. Most men who went up, and it was mostly men, went up in B-17s and B-24s, etc., and in the, the fighter, fighter planes around them, had a maximum of 17 missions. If you made it back and went up again, your chances of surviving were very slim. My father flew 51 missions and came back. was shot down on 51st and wounded. But the descriptions of what that was like, there, there were two bombing raids over uh, trying to get a ball bearing factory that went up in daylight. Uh, it was a factory that was making ball bearings. Ball bearings were important for German tanks and things. And the first of those raids, there were two raids. One was a spectacular failure. Sixty planes were shot down. Six hundred American flyers died in an afternoon. And it failed. And they sent up another. They tried again. Seventy planes were shot down in the second. And each plane had ten flyers. You think, scratch them. And it was considered a failure. It was not a successful, neither one. It was defeated. Because the American fighter planes that were supposed to protect them were so small that they had to turn back before the planes ever got to to Germany because they were going to run out of gas. So the fighter planes could only go to a certain point. They had to turn around, and then, of course, the German planes came up right at that point, knowing what kind of planes they were flying. So you think, those are the living beings we're talking about. (laughs) To have the incredible technologies, the best manufacturing skills the best that humanity can do is to create a machine that is designed to throw metal into your body so you bleed and die. And we create all these ways to do that. Why? Because one particular man, but the people around him, decided that they were going to attack and dominate. I think, as they said in... Butch Cassidy and the Sunset Kids and the Sundance Kid. Who are these guys? Who were those guys? Who said, we are the master race. Therefore, you must die. Who are these guys? Are they the living beings that Sutra's talking about? Yeah. Are they far away and long ago? No. What's my connection to them? Uh, pretty close. What's wrong with us? Is this the best we can do? No. 
And for us to sit here and ask these questions is so easy. But if you were a German and they took away your grandfather and your son, no matter what you think, you don't, they didn't ask you to vote whether you wanted to mechanize. So the German army pushes into Russia and in one campaign, uh, 40,000 Germans are captured and put to death. 40,000 German families lost their father, son, husband, brother. Boom. Why? Because somebody was, what, in charge? You just think, what, who are these people? Well, us is the answer. So what do we do? We say, uh, is there another way? <laughs> and at what point do I lose my ability to change the course of things? At what point do I say, oops, it's no longer in my control? And I think, well, who did we elect for president for eight years who took all the money and gave it to rich people? Never. We're not doing politics tonight, are we? No. <laughs> If we survive another 10, 20 years, young people, right, your children will say to you, didn't you know what was going on then? Couldn't, why, did, why did you elect them twice? The Houston Oilers. Why did you elect them twice? Twice! You'll go, you had to be there. You had to understand. I, I didn't vote for... I, I wanted Al Gore. But he won. But no. How quickly we forget. I was really hoping when Obama was elected that we would find out what really happened in Florida. We don't know yet. Nobody's telling. Did the Republicans steal that vote? I really want to know. I want to know the story. So, anyway. History, huh? And yet here we are, same living beings, our parents' generation, were in those airplanes, bombing, ball-bearing factories and dying wholesale by better killing machines that the Germans had because they're very precise. What in the world? Right? And you can take that war and just put it into Asia and put it into the Middle East and put it into Ireland and put it into culture war brewing in the United States and go, oops, have we changed? The sutra says there is a better way. That's not the whole story. There's more. But it's entirely, entirely up to us to say, hmm, thank goodness the Bodhisattva says, I will set those living beings into the magnificent wisdom of the vast great Buddha Dharma. That's a really good reason to keep these sutras alive when you realize just within our parents' experience, they gave up so much for the war effort because it was real. Some madman had arisen in Europe and in Japan at the time and said, We are in charge, we're the master race. What do you do? So 
Thank goodness the sutras gives us a perspective where we can say, given that choice, what would I do? So, uh, next week, by golly, we're done with the Bodhisattva's politically incorrect, dyspeptic descriptions of living beings. On one hand, that's too bad. On the other hand, it's a relief, isn't it? (laughs) To have this Bodhisattva here reading us out week after week. So, this is how the Bodhisattva protects and upholds the precepts. What are we talking about? Second ground. Second ground is the ten goods and ten evils. Remember? That's where we began. And this Bodhisattva has given those ten goods and ten evils, said, here's what living beings do. They go the the evil's way. The the good's way is a better way. I want to bring them there. That's what I'm about. So, this is called the ground that leaves defilement behind. And right now, from next week, we get into the refrain part of all ten grounds. The, the ten grounds chapter has an internal consistency so that um, each one has a pattern. There's an introduction, there's the new content, and there's the summary. And we're about to start the summary part, the refrain, so to speak. And it goes much quicker, and uh, we will see the pattern for the, first, for the second time. We met it in the, in the first ground. Now we're in the second round. And so we'll be moving a little more quickly through the text. All righty. We are, uh, it's nine o'clock and we're going to transfer the merit. So on that sheet um, that's in part of your, your text. Oh, if you have a songbook, you've got a songbook in front of you. So please um, turn to the back of that songbook and let's make a, make a vow and send out the Merit and virtue. Did you see that um, workers from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant are now dying? They've had two of the the folks who were right there working on the the atomic power plant have died, and everybody's going, "Oops, what about that?" All of that. Uh, I also heard that there's 120,000 people still homeless in Japan who are in the path of the tsunami and have, you know, they're... I'm sure the Japanese are very good at building new structures quickly, but at this point, they're still, they're still exposed. No security whatsoever. Except what we might send to them. Please send out your, the, the Catholics would call it intercessory prayers. Send out your wishes for goodness.
every living being, our minds as one and radiant with light. Share the fruits of peace with hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see, how hands and hearts can finally give unity. Pay their minds away to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow Boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate.